Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. In the weeks since our last program and weeks away from the 20th commemoration of the 9-11 terror attacks that sent America to Afghanistan, the Taliban have retaken the country in the span of two short weeks. President Biden, however, has come under blistering fire at home and abroad for both his decision to aggressively withdraw U.S. forces from the country, but also not anticipating the rapid collapse of the Kabul government and for failing to more quickly withdraw tens of thousands of Americans and Afghans who helped U.S. and allied forces during uh, the past two decades of war. The specific charge against the United States leveled by none other than British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace is that America can't be trusted, a charge that is being repeated in Beijing and in Moscow. Worldwide, those who served in Afghanistan, whether in uniform, foreign service, NGOs, charities, uh, including those who sacrificed so much, are left asking, what's the point? Uh, A question that we tried to tackle several weeks ago on this program. Uh, In an unprecedented step, the British Parliament has voted to hold in contempt both Prime Minister Boris Johnson, as well as the American president for what that great deliberative body considers uh, dishonorable conduct in Afghanistan. Joining us to discuss this extraordinary week in Washington and beyond are Dr. Patrick Cronin of the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Chris Jackson of Ipsos Public Affairs, one of the le- world's leading uh, uh, polling uh, and public affairs firms, Jim Townsend of the Center for Uh, a new American security, our very own producer, Chris Cervello, who is a retired uh, United States Navy commander and former Navy public affairs officer and former Pentagon comptroller, Dr. Dov Zakheim of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, one of his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and check out our weekly Cavus Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who take a deep dive every week in naval issues. I should also point out that our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine and Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine, sponsored our recent coverage of the Navy League's uh, sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Uh, and also, uh, before we get started, I wanted to make another important uh, programming uh, note. The National Defense Industrial Association is among the groups uh, that are helping companies trying to get their uh, Afghan employees out of harm's way. Uh, go to ndia.org uh, for more information uh, and how you can help those uh, who uh, stand to lose so much for having helped us. Uh, Chris, You've been very patient with that extraordinarily long introduction. Uh, You guys uh, executed uh, a very, very interesting poll uh, where you looked at American public perceptions uh, of Afghanistan, especially as uh, the Taliban was taking power again in Kabul. You also looked at some of the political dimensions of this. Talk to us about some of the top line uh, findings uh, and what they, you know, how they should have informed the debate and discussion we're having now. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think the first thing, though, that's really important is just to remember that everyone on this show, probably everyone listening to this show, their experiences and understanding is not normal, is not typical of, of your average American, right? This is, I think, a very highly educated, highly uh, informed group of people. And that's not the American people. 
uh, as a whole. And that's what our data really tells us is that the American people's views of Afghanistan are in many ways pretty inconsistent or incoherent. Uh, and I think they're very, very much shaped by sort of the quality of news coverage, uh, what they see in the news. Um, you know, if we look back over the past many years, uh, past decade, really, Americans have not been terribly supportive of the war in Afghanistan. Uh, but as, as uh, troop fatalities dropped, it became sort of a thing most Americans kind of forgot about for the most part. But if you did ask them about it, they'd say, oh, yeah, we should get out. Right. But before the last few weeks, when we asked Americans what their number one priority was, only one in a hundred would say foreign policy, foreign conflicts, the war in Afghanistan, something like that. People were much more focused on domestic issues like the economy or the pandemic or immigration or stuff like that. Um, so when we asked people the day after the fall of Kabul on Monday, uh, we found that Americans were still all over the place. They were both at the same time majorities in favor of withdrawing all of our troops on schedule and sending troops back in to secure facilities and help evacuate people. So, you know, I don't think we should necessarily think the American people are going to give us a clear answer in terms of what they want. I think the American people don't want to be fighting for purposes they don't really understand, but they also don't want to necessarily see America as having failed at something. And I think you're, you know, looking for a a through line like that makes sense in, in Americans' responses is going to be something of a futile effort. I would completely agree with you as somebody in Washington who is looking at all the nuances of this. You know, I, friends of mine and I have engaged in very passionate conversations about this issue. I think there isn't anybody who doesn't feel passionate about it, especially those who went and served in Afghanistan or were reporters who covered Afghanistan uh, and some of whom spent many years in Afghanistan. Uh, so, you know, there is a lot of uh, passion associated with the issue, but there's also a very, very powerful political dimension to this issue and the concern that the president of the United States does not have a lot of political margin, and that this is something that can uh, and, and, and likely will be wrapped around uh, his neck, depending on how things uh, go, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the Taliban will be back in charge at 9-11 celebrations, just like it was on 9-11-2001. How did this debate unfold along political lines? Because Republicans are making hay with this, but then again, so are some Democrats, especially veterans who served. Right. So that's actually interesting. And I think it, again, speaks to the shallowness of most Americans' views of Afghanistan, not to, you know, say anything about the actual suffering, the actual pain, the actual sacrifice people have given. But for most Americans, the Afghanistan war has been something that they've seen on TV, maybe occasionally, but haven't really thought about. So it's not necessarily been something that's been real for them. Uh, so again, a lot of it is the theater, right? So Biden's approval ratings were in the low 50s last week. We had them at 51% midweek. It had bounced up to 53% on Friday, but that's honestly sort of within the noise of, of, of our surveys. And then on Monday, it had dropped down to 46%. So he had lost some ground. He had lost standing with the American public. Um, but it's already sort of bouncing back up as the political battle lines draw. And as you see Republicans essentially, you know, taking anything available to try to, to take dents out of uh, Biden and Democrats sort of rallying around Biden, even if they're sort of critical and think they should be doing something else. He's certainly better than the Republicans. So it's being built into the pre-existing 
partisan narratives in this country. And we're sort of losing any sort of sense of unified purpose or unified goal. And that's the interesting thing is when we did that poll on Monday, we didn't actually see a lot of partisan difference in how people responded. We saw large majorities of both Republicans and Democrats saying we should evacuate people who who worked with us and fought with us, Afghans who worked with us and fought with us. But I think as the political machines have kicked into gear, as you've seen the partisan press really sort of moving, that's falling apart. Because at the end of the day, what matters more is winning the political battles than actually achieving any goals. Um, uh, you've uh, got to go in a minute, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. One of the things you guys uh, track really well, and uh, your CEO, Daryl Bricker, uh, up in Toronto, has been kind enough to join us uh, numerous times uh, over the past year to talk about perceptions of the United States. I know that that's something that you guys track on a regular basis. Does this, from your standpoint or any of the research you do, meaningfully change how the United States is perceived uh, around the world, right? Because there was this sense that Joe Biden was bringing America back, was going to engage no more unilateralism, uh, and America can be trusted. And for some, uh, this is evidence why Joe Biden can't be trusted, including some voices from some of our closest allies. What work have you guys done on that? And what does it tell you? Well, I think it's too soon to know, honestly. Um, We don't really know how this is going to shake out. But The Afghanistan war hasn't been terribly popular in other countries either, uh, and certainly in a lot of our allies. So I don't really anticipate this having any sort of pronounced impact on views of Biden, uh, certainly not compared to sort of his more general sort of relatively bland sort of multilateralism, which definitely stands in contrast to Trump's, you know, strident uh, sort of nationalism. Uh, I mean, I think, yeah, it probably will hurt the reputation of the country in some quarters. But in terms of the population level sentiment, I don't really anticipate it having a huge, huge impact. Chris, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great weekend and already looking forward to having you back on. Yeah, great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks again. Um, A lot of food for thought there uh, from Chris. And Dove, I wanted to start off uh, with you. You were kind enough to join us on Monday right after the president's first address uh, roughly an hour or so ago. We heard from him uh, again. I think the consensus is of the president's performance. Uh, was uh, better. Did he did he say the right things? Did he change the narrative, uh, including the perception, even coming from some of our allies, as uh, you know, the United States is is untrustworthy. We have the extraordinary vote in the British uh, Parliament. Um, you know, sort of give us your sense on on where your thoughts are, sort of a week into this, where we are, uh, where we're going, because the Taliban. I think it's dawning on them that they may have their arms full as well, because this is a very different Afghanistan that they've taken over. Take it in any direction uh, yeah. uh, you want, given all you've learned across the course of this week. Sure. Uh, to begin with, uh, yeah, he did better today. Um, look, he was willing to take on question after question after question. That already is a tremendous contrast with his predecessor. He, he's convinced he's done the right thing, and he did his best to convince the uh, press that he was doing the right thing, the media. The, the trouble is that it's not at all clear, particularly in uh, Europe. Uh, I'll let Patrick speak about Asia, but it's not, a, and, and certainly the Middle East as well. It's not clear that he's convinced people. And I think the reason that it's not clear is not just because of Biden. I think people recognize that Biden is a straight shooter. He may flub his words on occasion, 
but what you see is what you get. The problem, I think, is perception of America. This is now the second time that uh, we've seen uh, a president of the United States, essentially, whatever he may be saying now, essentially sidestep his allies. He didn't, he clearly didn't prepare to any lengths uh, or degrees uh, joint planning with the allies how to get people out. I mean, he's saying he did, but that's not the facts on the ground. And so, you know, people are saying, look, uh, we hedged against America before because of Trump. Uh, we better not stop hedging. And that, I think, is the fundamental problem. The problem isn't Joe Biden. The problem is America. And um, secondly, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, yeah, the polls will always show that Americans are not, you know, not knowledgeable. There's nothing new about that. Uh, most people don't know who the vice president is, regardless of who the vice president is. Right. But that's what leadership's about. Leadership is about telling the American people where they should be going. Roosevelt didn't have uh, the polls supporting going into World War II uh, pretty much until Pearl Harbor. Um, and so, you know, it's not clear that Biden has convinced the American people that when he says he's going to defend women or minorities or that human rights is a priority, that that's important. And so the American people don't particularly pay attention to that. But the Europeans do, and the Europeans in particular, uh, because that's important to them. And that's something they felt that America wasn't doing before. And here you have a case where uh, whatever else you might want to say about Afghanistan, you're going to you know that people, uh, minorities are going to be massacred. Women are already being locked up again, and that's not going to play well. And so, it, again, it's not Biden. It's not his advisors. It's a concern about is the American century really over? I think that is the fundamental problem. Um, I want to round uh, back. Uh, on some of the questions you raised in a minute, because I want to kind of go around the horn uh, first. Uh, Jim, uh, you know, you worked these issues, obviously, throughout eight years uh, of uh, the administration. You were uh, at the Atlantic Council think tank before then, where you were working some of these uh, issues. You served in government even before that, uh, and 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 certainly uh, were in proximity and, and focused on this issue since, uh, you know, almost since birth. Not, not quite like Dove was, right, present at, at creation. Well, I was there. I was the president at the creation beginning. Uh, yeah, no, I, Dove and I shared a trench. <laughs> he, uh, he did a bigger trench than I did, but we were there at the same time. You, you were you were there at the same time. Uh, it, former NATO Secretary General George Robertson, someone not prone to hyperbole or cheap shots, absolutely lambasted the president uh, in comments uh, at the Atlantic Council today, saying that the man who was touted as you know, bringing, uh, saying America was back and bringing America uh, back and talking about the importance of NATO, uh, unilaterally left its allies uh, in, a, in a lurch. And, and there was sadly too much agreement from other senior former leaders, uh, including uh, the likes of Jim Jones, sort of another person who's not prone uh, to, to knee-jerk uh, reaction as well. Even Britain, America's closest ally is, is, is voicing that. This theme is, is being uh, repeated. Um, now, I'm sort of curious how we left it in alert, given that most of my conversations with European uh, officials have sort of been like, well, we know exactly what you're going to do and what the timeline is going to do, and we think it's too aggressive. And then the whole debate was how long does 
Kabul hold out and what are the dynamics and just do the Taliban take uh, Kabul and the big cities or leave them in order to be able to get international aid, right? I mean, talk to us a little bit about what you think of some of these storylines and some of these criticisms, because a cynic might say European nations also were caught flat-footed by this rapid collapse. And so it's really easy to blame the United States on this. Take it in any direction you want to take it, because I know you've been having a lot of important conversations this week. Well, I, I think it's hard to push back on Lord Robertson in terms of feeling that uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, left allies in a lurch. But I think we have to define what he means by that. I think, I think, the, I think allies were left in the lurch as much as we were. We were all together in the lurch, uh, and I think um, I think that uh, we were all surprised by that. I think the um, it's a couple things. One is. Uh, the allies have really been following the United States lead for the last 20 years. And so, uh, you know, like when you're flying in formation, if the formation lead takes a dive, everybody's going behind the formation lead and that into that dive. And, uh, and I think in a lot of ways, uh, what we were seeing here is that, um, uh, you know, there was there, there number one there were there were not allies who pushed back against the United States in terms of how we were conducting things for the past twenty years uh, um, in, in Afghanistan. The allies were with us. They they were some grumbling, but there was no big demonstrations against Coin or against certain bits of leadership, whatever. So the so the allies were with us, and we were glad for that. There was no one complaining that they were that that they were not pushing back at us, but for allies to say, we didn't like this all along and now look, it's a disaster and it's your fault. That's absolutely wrong because the Alliance and the allies individually were, were with us for better or for worse. And we both ended up in this lurch that's happened that has now surprised us all. And so I think, I think in terms of the lurch itself, I don't believe uh, the president or the SECDEF or anybody else picked up the phone and called London and Brussels and Paris and other places and said, hey, things have really dissolved. It's collapsing. This is what we're going to do. What are you going to do? I think we headed off in the direction that we were going. In a lot of ways, we were kind of making it up as we went along. I hate to say that, but there was a lot of a lot of pickup game going on in terms of the U.S. approach. And I don't think we had time to sit down and really do consultations, which is what the what Lord Robertson was talking about, that we didn't consult with allies. Well, I think we we didn't consult with allies. We barely consulted with ourselves as things collapsed. So, um, so, 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 so there wasn't phone calls. There are phone calls going on now, as we know. There's not the degree of coordination, I think, that needs to go on on the ground where we have British and French special operations folks going out and pulling in from outside the, the wire, if you will, their nationals or Afghans who help them, pulling them into the airport. Uh, my understanding is that the SECDEF has said, we can't do ops uh, outside the wire. Maybe we are, because we wouldn't necessarily be talking about it either. Uh, but I think I wish there was a lot more coordination and I wish there was a lot more that NATO was doing on all of this. I, I swear, I I do not see the, the section had a, a press conference today. He talked about uh, what the foreign ministers had agreed to. I think the foreign ministers had also met today and they were saying, we're going to get our NATO people out of there. Well, I don't see NATO doing that. Maybe the U.S. is doing it on behalf of NATO. Maybe some of the other allies are doing it. But I, but this is a NATO operation, and I just think NATO has got to play more of a role. Maybe they are. Maybe we just don't know about it. But I don't see it. So, um, so I that 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 concerns me. But I, but back to Lord Robertson and what he was saying. I think 
a lot of uh, well, the British Parliament for one, and and a lot of European uh, politicians are pointing the finger at us again. Not so much about the last twenty years, because if they do, you should twist that finger off because they were following us wordlessly. But I think they're pointing the finger at us in terms of we thought you were competent, we thought you were uh, back and in and, and consultation mode or at least notification mode. We thought you guys uh, could handle things uh, like this. You would negotiated this treaty with the Taliban. And, um, and, and now it's a mess. And so kind of what Dove was just saying, uh, you know, now so the, so the U.S. credibility in terms of being a good ally in consulting or the U.S. credibility in terms of our competence in handling very tough operations like this, that's what is going to, that's what's taking a beating right now, deservedly show, so at, at least at this point, but as another one of your guests said, we're going to have to see what happens because if the U.S. is able to pull off this evacuation uh, and the other allies as well and NATO hopefully as well and, and over the next month, uh, we're able to uh, to do uh, meet a lot of the goals that we set out to do in a competent fashion. That will help. But if the next few weeks are are continue to be a catastrophe with bad optics, bad videos coming out of horrible things happening, uh, then this is going to ha certainly have a far-reaching consequence. And uh, and so we're going to have to just wait and see how bad it gets. Maybe we can pull it out. Maybe we can't. Um, let me uh, uh, ask you very briefly. Um, there is this narrative that because we pulled out of Afghanistan, that we will somehow not defend Estonia or any of our European allies. What do you make of that accusation? Because I want you to kind of cue this up because I want to get Patrick's uh, sense on this uh, as, as as well. Obviously, uh, Taiwan, uh, there a lot of news happened actually on Taiwan, uh, despite the fact everybody's focused on Afghanistan. But well, uh, just very briefly, give us your sense on, on that. I would say absolute crap because this is exactly what the Russians would want them to think. The Russians would want uh, Estonians or, or Lithuanians to say, to think to themselves, oh my God, look, the Americans, uh, and uh, not just uh, signs of incompetence, but, but in terms of loyalty and, and how they are dealing with the Afghans who support them. Look how the Americans are handling this. This is terrible. This means bad things for us. That's what the Russians want them to think. But let me tell you, this is apples and oranges. This, this, this catastrophe that's happening now isn't because we set out to do it that way. It's not an ideological or a political or something uh, that in Washington that said, look, we're going to just pull out of there and devil, devil take the hindmost when it comes to loyalty and that kind of thing. No one wanted this to happen. It happened because of some incompetence and, and, and who knows what else we're going to have to see. But people that live in the Baltics or Poland or Hungary, Romania, uh, Hungary Bulgaria, uh, who are on the front lines, they should not draw conclusions uh, in terms of their own safety and security and what the United States will be doing in their neighborhood. They shouldn't be drawing conclusions based on Afghanistan. It's, it's apples and oranges. It's totally uh, not comparable. Um, but I tell you, I think we, the United States, have a lot to prove to them uh, that in fact, uh, even given the crisis that we're in and the tragedy that we're going through in Afghanistan, we're going to be able to do the right thing because at the end of the day, we are competent and we are going to pull this out and that they should take heart and just let's, let's give us some time to get this thing right. 
Um, and I, I should point out that the United States has a pretty good track record of actually coming through for allies that it views are doing uh, for themselves. And there is no doubt, right? I mean, at the 20 year mark, Germany and Japan were already standing on their own and becoming economic and military powers again. And, and so I would, that's the counterpoint, right? I mean, I think you can see the president's frustration is, even though there are very, very many Afghans that did fight, fought honorably uh, for their country, the, the question is from a political leadership standpoint, there was all too much corruption and the money wasn't getting to security forces. Uh, and unfortunately, at a time when everybody was hoping that Afghans would be standing up uh, more for their country. And I appreciate the whole part about being dependent on contractors. I've made that case. You know, we, we gave them high-end American gear that had to be supported by American contractors, and it wasn't there for them. But I think that that's the under, underlying point. Patrick, let me bring you into the discussion. Quite a lot of uh, Taiwan news this week. And Frank, uh, there's a, a debate whether or not the president misspoke uh, regarding Taiwan. China obviously has done a series of articles uh, and a lot of rhetoric coming out of Beijing uh, to try to um, make it seem as though, see, Taiwan, this is aimed at you. You're vulnerable. Pack up sticks. Come into uh, you know, join us uh, in uh, as a as the latest province in the People's Republic of China. Um, you know, what's what's your sense on how all of this is playing in Asia? Um, the United States has made it abundantly clear we would fight for Japan or for Korea or for Singapore or for Australia. And at the same time, the United States is increasingly making it clear that it will absolutely fight uh, China over Taiwan. And then you have the president's uh, statement in the George Stephanopoulos interview. Talk talk to us about, where, because I think Joe Biden speaks his mind and you just have to listen. And the guy tells you what's on his mind, right? People may come in after the fact and try to clean it up a little bit, but give, give us your sense on where we are and how Afghanistan affects China. Well, Vago, um, I think, you know, when I was in Southeast Asia 20 years ago on 9-11 uh, for the George W. Bush administration, and uh, the outpouring of sympathy was uh, tremendously felt there as it was around the world for the United States. But over time, it quickly became seen as a great distraction. Both Afghanistan and Iraq were seen as diverting America's attention from what they thought were the critical uh, parts of uh, the Indo-Pacific, of East Asia and the Pacific in particular. Um, and so there's a mixed set of feelings uh, among our Asian Pacific allies. On the one hand, uh, they are uh, somewhat happy to see the strategic choice finally being made by Biden, because after all, Obama and Trump were in some ways elected with the idea of winding down uh, America's post-9-11 uh, wars. Um, but at the same time, Biden has taken that step. But I think everybody in Asia and around the world uh, who likes America is very vexed by uh, the execution of this, of this policy. Um, and that's where China is exploiting the, for the propaganda points that this is the end of American hegemony, the American moment. Um, and that's, we didn't have that 20 years ago. So you know, 20 years ago when we were hit on 9-11, we had world sympathy. Now, as we pull out of Afghanistan, the Asians say, well, that's the end of the great distraction. Uh, on the same time, uh, we're worried about America's staying power and reliability going forward, and China is hitting on that. Now, in this Taiwan moment that the president had with his uh, George Stephanopoulos interview, uh, he, he did the right thing by underscoring America's security commitments and how enduring they are, because I, I, I think the president understands America right now needs to surpass expectations with our allies, as well as with our potential foes, about our willingness to uh, to, to deter and to stand up to aggression. Um, and so you're probably right. He probably didn't actually misspeak about Taiwan when he essentially suggested that we had treaty obligations to defend it. Um, 
but the Chinese have absolutely hammered this in in, in the in the official press uh, in, in the Global Times, for instance, the, the mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party, they've uh, talked about uh, the sputum that Biden is Biden is putting forward. Um, I won't even quote the whole. You gotta footage. love you gotta love the way Beijing puts it. Sputum. The Moscow has a great way of you know well, frothing at the mouth. You know it's, absolutely. It's, well, it's, literally, they say Vago, we want to warn the secessionists on Taiwan Island: don't swim in the sputum Biden carelessly spits out. The U.S. <laughs> won't defend Taiwan, and that's their talking point. That's their psychological uh, sort of message in operation right now. U.S. will not come to your defense. And they hammer this home every way, including with uh, new military exercises around Taiwan this week. So that's their message. And the United States, meanwhile, is pushing back on that. And I think uh, having the vice president go to Changi Naval Base uh, next week uh, in Singapore and visit the LCS uh, USS Tulsa, which has been doing uh, maritime security operations with Indonesia, uh, sends exactly the right kind of message saying, no, we're staying put. We are serious about China. We're serious about our uh, long-term obligations to our allies and partners. Um, and, and let me ask you, because you know uh, more Taiwanese than I do, um, uh, clearly, um, how, what are, what are your uh, Taiwanese and Japanese friends, right? I mean, are they buying, how, how, what's, what's sort of the public perception about whether the United States is there or not. And how, I mean, right, I mean, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff made it abundantly clear that the United States has to change how it thinks about warfare because we lost, and obviously it was a future war game, right? Uh, and and his, his point was, unless we start changing now, we will not be able to deter in a decade's time, right? I mean, so it wasn't like the current force was losing uh, uh, to that. But I thought it was illustrative that he was evidencing a massive war game that was played. And in fact, you and I, you joined us and we're discussing the kind of messaging that goes with it. How are Taiwanese and Japanese responding to this? Are they buying the notion of getting out of Afghanistan erodes that, or, or are they saying, yeah, we, we, we got it. This is a completely different ball game. Well, I think Japan feels more confident than Taiwan. Taiwan has just been under an unrelenting, unremitting pressure strategy from, from Beijing. Um, so, any uh, apparent weakness or, or sudden shift in the tectonic plates has them somewhat uh, concerned. Nonetheless, um, they recognize that China is not actually mounting a military offensive against them. They know that this is a psychological game, uh, sort of a pressure uh, match that's going on, a, a test of wills. So as long as the United States continues to respond, including, frankly, by the president, uh, quote unquote, misspeaking, um, I think they'll be sufficiently reassured. Japan is actually uh, surprisingly confident. Um, I, I had a, a chance to talk to senior officials uh, in Tokyo this week, um, and they are they clearly see this as an opportunity for the United States and Japan to focus uh, on China. Um, and uh, they feel reassured by that, but they want to do more together. They want to do more, not just in the East China Sea, but in the South China Sea and with partners in Southeast Asia and, and beyond. They also want to see our forthcoming documents like the National Security uh, Strategy of the Biden Administration and the Defense Strategy documents that will be forthcoming in the next few months. They want to see those documents uh, highlight the enduring long-term strategy and importance uh, that the United States puts on its allies and partners in the Asia-Pacific region. Cervello, you've patiently uh, waited, uh, and I wanted to bring you in on the communications strategy and how the administration is doing on the communications war. Um, you gave a, a tough grade uh, on Monday on how the president did. I think there was a consensus uh, that it was better uh, today. Um, he doesn't speak in sound bites, as you said. There is a lot of nuance he's trying to convey. 
Uh, he sometimes gets himself into traps in 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 doing that. Um, walk walk us through what this messaging week has been, because uh, our mutual friend John Kirby has been doing as extraordinary a job as one can expect under the circumstances. I think we can agree, right? Um, you know, walk walk us through the week. What you thought the messages are? What's sticking? What's changing? And how does it change the discussion going forward? Uh, thanks, Vago. I, I mean, from a communication perspective, you know, th there are a lot of innings uh, le left in this game, uh, to use a baseball analogy. Um, if, if I were scoring at home, I, I'd say after three innings, the White House is down three to two. Um, and, you know, this thing's going to go uh, at least nine and, and, and maybe longer because it's going to be this back, back and forth. And as all of the guests have talked about, I mean, this is a battle of optics. It's a battle of optics at home. It's a battle of optics uh, overseas. J just a couple of observations as the week has progressed and, and not to nerd out, but from a communication focus standpoint, we tend to look at audiences and in you know, in this case, you have to ask who is the most important audience to the to the White House, um, and and you know that that may change over time, um, but but right now um, it, it's it's hard to tell if President Biden is trying to reach allies, you know, potential adversaries, swing voters, veterans. Um, it, it honestly looks like um, the most engaged audience is that of the media and of, of intellectuals. Again, as you as you talked about from the call that you were on earlier today, these folks traditionally aren't considered audiences. I mean, they, they tend to people be the people that kind of amplify what um, you, you know what people are saying and and tend to be bellwethers of, of of what is being said. But but here, the the most anger and the most vitriol seems to be coming from. The media and the thinking class uh, it, it itself, uh, and we've seen that, you, you know, over the last uh, decade or so, that um, you know, both the media and the intellectual class, they really do find ways to make the story um, about themselves. And in the coverage over the last week, we, we've certainly seen that. I mean, both both groups feel burned on Afghanistan, and seem to be hell bent on making the Biden team feel the pain. Uh, of that burn. Uh, and, and Chris talked about this at the top of the show, whereas the American people are almost ambivalent as they have been over the last 20 years about what's going on in Afghanistan. You know, as you read articles, as you look, as you, you know, sort of carefully watch social media, you you, you see that that vitriol and, and, and that burn. Getting to specifically- so, so reporters, so reporters are passionately talking to each other to outpassion themselves on the message I, I mean, I think that's one way of, of looking at it. I, I think that, I mean, they are definitely part of the story, right? I mean, you and I talked earlier today about how this is a, a relatively new phenomenon, right? I mean, I, especially the national security media, the, the, the folks of the Pentagon, the folks of the State Department, the folks in the White House, they are very much part of the story. They have been for 20 years, in spite of the fact that maybe the, the larger national audience wasn't. And so they seem to be the ones that are expressing their own personal uh, concern and, and, and own personal disappointment about the decision making and how things were, were carried out. I did not like the idea of the president going to the podium today um, and then, you know, jumping on Air Force One or Marine One and heading to Delaware. I thought it was a bad idea, but uh, as Dove and others said, the president did do a much better job. Um, and, and although I'm not sure the narrative has been altered, the speech he gave on Monday was about a month late. 
Um, the speech he gave today was probably the speech he should have given on, on Monday, but the fact that he gave it, the fact that he stood in there and, and, and took questions, um, I, I think is, is helpful. Um, and then lastly, I would just say um, that hopefully is the turning point, right? I mean, all week, the White House, the State Department, the Department of Defense have been out of sync in terms of messaging and tone. Um, as the week progressed, uh, you know, government communication was like a, a high school orchestra uh, warming up, right? I mean, there were lots of squeaks and squawks and they just didn't appear to be a steady rhythm or a steady harmony of information coming out of the three organizations. Hopefully the president's remarks today help bring that in line and uh, we'll be able to move on from a, from a messaging standpoint. What you're basically saying is the president made a good call by staying in Washington, even if he is going to be the one that's going to be driving the news cycle. But obviously that was the idea, right? Have a more in control Joe Biden driving the news narrative uh, over the weekend, as opposed to a, I'm just getting clobbered on a daily basis, Joe Biden. All of the guests have said, I mean, it's going to be a battle of video, right? And so the last thing I think the White House needed after a turning moment from the podium is uh, imagery of the president, you know, heading to, to Delaware for the weekend. So good on them for, for keeping him at the White House, for him staying at the White House. I mean, as we've talked about before, those that know, know that he can do his job anywhere. But this is an important, uh, you know, optic moment for the president to be seen in D.C. in control. Dov, let me uh, bring you to the question of sort of what happens next. Uh, obviously, uh, the Taliban, I mean, one of the things we've discussed uh, on this program before, and I should note, right, um, this notion of we're not ready for prime time uh, is problematic. And then whenever there's a collapse like this, uh, one of the things that folks, uh, thoughtful people have been talking about is all of the practical things that suddenly don't exist. There are no Afghan forces to protect the airfield. Uh, there's nobody to call. Uh, to do uh, very simple things. There are massive stockpiles of equipment from night vision goggles to unmanned aircraft to radios, you name it, that are now in Taliban hands, including lots of ammunition, lots of weapons, uh, vehicles uh, that, that, that they now uh, can use. But the dynamic also appears to be a little bit different. So, so Dove, what does the administration need to be doing next, right? The United States still has an awful amount of power. Um, yeah. The United States still controls a lot of international aid. If the United States wants to, and I think there's a little bit of forbearance on the part of the president, right? He said, there are many other steps that we can do. There will be time for recriminations. Now's not the time to do that. And, and the United States could make China and Russia, for example, radioactive in, in terms, you know what I mean? There, there's a lot of, what are the things this administration needs to do in a systemic pattern to try to get the narrative on track? to try to control this situation as much as possible, to help Afghans as much as possible, while at the same time, maybe carrot and sticking their way on the Taliban, who will have a massive internal challenge. Taliban leaders think their own base is getting too extreme because they're trying to strike a different tone. Uh, and apparently there's some frustration that these extremist elements are going door to door and killing people uh, or shaking them up. At the same time, Afghan people have been out on the streets demonstrating, and there may, and you know this this battle may actually be fought there, as many unfortunately of these things do. They devolve into civil war. What's what are the things the administration has to do? What does it need to be keeping its eye on? And I kind of want to go around the horn in terms of messaging and some other things this administration has to do in different parts of the world. Even though I think Patrick and Jim did a terrific job in trying to address them. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I want to build on what they did say because I think they're right. To me, the issue is execution, you know, beginning with President Obama 
and even with President Bush, lots of fine words, lots of things we said we would do. We didn't exactly do them well, or we didn't do them at all like the Obama red line. And I think, you know, going back to the point that I made earlier, it's about American credibility. So what should we do? We know, for example, that if we want to keep the Estonians in our, in, on our side, they have to know that we're going to show up in time if there's any kind of threat. That's not entirely clear right now. We have to take steps to make sure that it is clear. That's the best way to get a message to the Russians. What the Estonians will hear, the Russians will hear. Same thing with China. If we really want the Chinese to believe that we'll defend Taiwan, or for that matter, Japan, or any of our other friends and allies out there, then we need to do a lot more, and we need to do a lot more budget-wise. We can't play games with the Pacific, uh, with, with the, uh, Pacific um, Deterrence Initiative. We shouldn't be cutting the European Deterrence Initiative. And we should have more exercises with allies and without allies in these regions to show that we mean it. We have to be able to show that we execute because what this Afghanistan disaster really showed, and it's still showing by the way, because there's still chaos near the airport. And the fact that we're not gonna help Afghans get inside the wire, only Americans. Uh, yes, the president kind of modified that and we'll treat them equally, but we're not doing very much there. We didn't do the same, evidently not yet, or not publicly yet, though I think it would have leaked. And one of the things that did come out, right, I mean, they are terrified of some having some sort of suicide bomber situation happen there, right? I mean, oh, so that, absolutely. That, that is but, one of the factors, but, but it's still not, right? There are ways we can do this. There are right, ways we, we can do to. these things. And, and so the key to really get American credibility back where it should be is to demonstrate that we don't just say things, we execute. Sanctions don't do the job. Blocking uh, money to the Afghans won't do the job for the simple reason that the, it's not clear how much the Afghans really need because so much was wasted. I had an article today quoting these uh, special inspector general for Afghanistan who said that in the last 20 years, just on military stuff, we spent $83 billion. And where did that get us? So spending money isn't necessarily the thing. Uh, I could go on about that. I don't want to waste time. It's a whole other issue about how we deal with contractors. But in any event, we've got to be able to demonstrate that we can execute. If we can demonstrate that, then I think what Jim said and what Patrick said will be totally true. The allies will come back on board. Our friends will come back on board. They'll see we're serious, but we have to show that. We can't just talk about it. Um, I uh, couldn't agree with you more. And a friend of mine uh, today sent a picture of Italian F-35s over Tallinn, uh, where he says uh, people are getting uh, jittery regarding the Zapad. Uh, exercises uh, that Russia uh, is uh, is uh, conducting. Jim, you talked a little bit about um, you, you know what the administration has to do to reassure uh, Euro Europeans. Um, what are some other strategic levers uh, that the administration should be pulling? How else should it be marshalling our European allies? And how do we also walk and chew gum at the same time? Because as my friend in Tallinn points out, there is a massive Russian exercise uh, that is being dubbed as the Ukrainian contingency exercise, right? I mean, so the Russians are going to keep doing what they do, even if it's not particularly opportune for us. 
Right. No, I, I, that's right. And, and let me just say, I agree completely with uh, with what Dove said too. It, it is in the short term, at least, the execution. The next few weeks are going to be critical. We've got to pull it off. We got to pull it off reasonably, and we have to be seen doing the right thing, not just being. Uh, competent in what we set out to do, but people see that we're doing the right thing. In other words, we're not leaving behind masses of, of Afghan refugees huddled at the gate. Um, you know, this is going to be hard. Where do you draw the line? Who do you take and who do you leave behind? I don't know. But we've got to do it well, and we've got to be seen as doing the right thing. Um, but let me throw something else your, your way along those lines. Um, I, I, th I think there's something else too, and this is going to be really tricky. There's going to be hearings on the Hill and there's going to be newspaper investigations. There already are about what went wrong. This administration to recover uh, is going to have to be seen as making changes or identifying what the problems were and maybe having some resignations. Uh, I, think, I, I, I think this administration can't just sweep under the rug the problems that have been exposed within the administration. I say that with a heavy heart, knowing that some good colleagues of mine are going to not appreciate that because, because you know, sometimes shit happens, no matter how good you are. But I think there's 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 going to be a premium that that will be paid if this administration is seen as avo avoiding trying to have a reckoning and make changes and make fixes and identify what the problems are. Uh, and I think the Congress, whether they like, whether the administration likes it or not, but the Congress is going to grab them uh, by the lapels and make them do that. So they better be getting ready for that right now. It's going to be Benghazi uh, on steroids, I'm afraid, in some ways. But at the same time, the administration is going to have to show that it can admit where it's, where it's been at fault and will be making changes. The last thing I'll say, and this goes to your question um, uh, somewhat is, is that um, I think we've got to do some stuff at NATO as well. I, I don't, I, I keep harping on NATO. This was a NATO operation. Um, and a lot of credibility that allies feel is not just about the United States, but also by about NATO as an alliance. And NATO as an alliance has got to do the right thing too. It's politics are tricky. It could very well be that allies are holding the alliance back from having a major role to play in the evacuation because they're afraid of refugees being brought in or something like that, which is just horrible. Uh, but but that's Europe and that's politics there. Um, but I think we have NATO has got to look at this too. And what did NATO not do? Uh, was NATO too dependent on Washington and the United States to call the shots and they were just following behind? Should NATO not have play a more engaged role? Uh, and if it thinks things are going off the rails that it says something to the United States or whoever it needs to be told to. And finally, NATO has the capability uh, and the responsibility in a lot of ways to handle some of the chaos uh, and humanitarian uh, disasters that are happening right now there. And I would sure wish that NATO at a minimum would be uh, coordinating a European airlift coming in, you know, that kind of thing and taking care of the Afghans who took care of NATO. Uh, and so I don't know where all this is. NATO's communications have not been very good to my mind on this. So, uh, so there's, there's that kind of thing that should be done to try to get credibility back, not just for the United States, but for NATO too. Patrick, any uh, closing thoughts and uh, Cervello than you? Well, Vago, uh, I agree with everything that's been said. We need to uh, execute better. And it was, I was reassured to hear the president talk about the willingness to risk lives to save lives, not just of Americans, but American friends as well to get them out. So that's important. 
Um, but we need to now take advantage of the strategic opportunity that the president himself has made the choice to try to seize. That is, let's get China to, to refocus their, their treasure inward rather than seaward, and then let the United States, along with allies and partners, invest further in sea power and air power. Um, this is an opportunity. We need to now make this happen because that's, that's the maneuverable global force we need to protect our interests. It'll be serious and real. Um, we'll work with allies on this and then let China um, you know, try to find out how well they can do that China-Pakistan economic corridor if there's civil war in Afghanistan at the same time there's unrest in the tribal regions of Pakistan and in Balochistan. Um, you know, that's a long haul, bad investment for China. We now have the upper hand strategically if we can take care of the humanitarian disaster, help our friends, but long-term start investing uh, outward in where America's strongest. Terrific point, uh, Patrick. Thanks very much. Uh, Cervello, you get the last word. Thanks, Paco. I, I think our guests have said it well. Um, good policy makes for good PR. The communication approach that got us to this point will not be sufficient for great power competition and potential conflict with China and Russia. So we've got to make the needed changes. Uh, I uh, couldn't agree with you more. Um, we are uh, the greatest power um, that is just not yet ready for prime time. And ideally this episode, the episodes of the past 20 years will serve as a wake up call to focus uh, people's attention uh, on, on doing it, getting it right uh, and being imaginative. Dove, you and I talked uh, not very long after 9-11 um, where it was just a lack of imagination. And we repeatedly are surprised by a lack of imagination. We just do not imagine, well, what happens if the Taliban takes the whole country back in a week? Well, let me just say one thing. And I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was David Ignatius who pointed this out. We have a predilection. And I say this as Ivy League Oxford graduate as well. We have a predilection to believe that the best and the brightest know it all. Let's not forget that Franklin Roosevelt got C's on all his report cards. It's a matter of not relying on your brain as much as listening, thinking, acting, and executing. And until we understand that, we're still going to have problems. That's right. All right. Amen to that. Uh, everybody, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, very, very difficult week, challenging one um, for uh, all those uh, who served, all those uh, who uh, certainly lost their loved ones uh, for Afghans that have sacrificed uh, so much. I know that, um, you know, there is the view that Afghanistan, right, we can't care about Afghanistan more than Af Afghans do, uh, but many did fight nobly and continue to struggle nobly, whether they're girls going to school or, or other things. Uh, but at the end of the day, right, uh, the, the challenge is uh, we, we are now where, where we are and we need to get to something better. Anyway, hope you all have a great weekend. Looking forward to having you back on again next week. In the meantime, have a great week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.